Good morning, everyone. Um, if you'd like to borrow a Bible, you can just raise your hand, and an usher will be able to get one to you shortly. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Josh Gregerson. I'm uh, uh, actually uh, kind of uh, part-time here at EBF, and I help give leadership to the Ethos Communities Ministry. Um, I hope that you guys are all in an Ethos community. Um, they're definitely the place where um, we want to be able to connect and grow in Christ and um, participate in mission together. Um, I'm currently finishing up my Master's of Divinity degree um, up in Deerfield, Illinois. I'll be done in May. And um, I recently got married to my lovely wife, Chanel, uh, this last September. So this is my first time preaching here with a wedding ring on my left hand. But it's a real privilege of mine to be able to bring you God's Word this morning. As most of you know, we usually work through books of the Bible here at EBF, but this year we've occasionally been preaching a series of sermons on our church's ethos statements. If you look inside your bulletin, you can see these five ethos statements at the bottom left. These ethos statements provide us with a snapshot of the type of community we want to become. They bring out our values and flow out of God's purposes for His church universal. But in order to understand our ethos, we need to get up to speed with what God has done for us. As I speak, God is on mission. He's been on mission since he created the universe. But because human beings have rejected the God who created them, God's mission has become a rescue mission, a mission to rescue us from our infatuation with ourselves and our worship of the world God has created. God sent his Son into our world to provide a way by which we can be saved, to be the Savior of our world. God's Son, Jesus Christ, came into the world with a mission to take our place, to experience all the effects of our sinful rebellion against God. Jesus experienced the fury of God's wrath over our sin as he spent six hours of death on a rugged old cross. But by the grace of God, that wasn't the end of the story. Three days later, the Heavenly Father raised his son from the dead. He appeared to more than 500 people, but not as some ghost. People touched him ate with him, drank with him, and laughed with him. Then, having accomplished all that God had sent out for him to do, Jesus ascended into heaven. But he didn't just say, peace out, guys, good luck with all that ministry and stuff. No, he gave us his spirit, the Holy Spirit, to bring new life to his people, to show them that Jesus really had paid the penalty for their sins on the cross, and to enable them to obey God. Now to all who believe in Christ, who trust that he has borne the penalty for their sins on the cross, and, put, and who put him in the driver's seat of their life, to every such person is given the right to be a child of God. Such persons are called Christians, followers of Christ, led by God's Spirit on mission. And they too are called to participate in this rescue mission of God. Our five ethos statements describe what it would look like for EBF to be aligned with this rescue mission. We would be anchored by orthodox Christian beliefs, but would speak them humbly to others. We would be catalyzed by worship as we cherish our intimate connection to Jesus Christ and the salvation he brings. Our community would feel like a tightly woven fabric of many colors that moves outward on mission to the world and inward on mission to each other with ever-increasing levels of peace, love, unity, and intimacy. We would live as sojourners who invest in the lives of the people sitting next to us and in the, our local community, whether we're here for a month, a year, a decade, or a lifetime. And on our lips would be that old gospel story of all Jesus has done for us, 
It would be what we sing about, what we talk about, what we tell afresh to our neighbor and tell again over and over to each other and to ourselves. It's precisely this gospel story that changed everything for the Apostle Paul, who went from being a persecutor of Christians to a proclaimer of Christ in the span of a few days. Please turn in your Bibles to our main text for this morning, 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 to 17. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. This morning's passage shows us that the gospel is a pervasive message that impacts all of life and spreads throughout the world through the, through the proclamation of them who follow Jesus. Again, that's 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 to 17. Please stand for the reading of God's word. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. You may be seated. Please pray with me that God would bless his word. Lord, we ask that you would visit us here this morning, that you would speak through me and through your spirit to bring conviction of sin and guidance um, into our lives, that we would become a community captivated by your glory that proclaims the gospel at every opportunity. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing we should notice in this passage is that followers of Christ celebrate the victory of Christ on the cross. We can see this in the first half of verse 14. Paul writes, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. This triumphal procession is the first of two metaphors in our passage. Here Paul shows us that God is leading us at the head of this ongoing worldwide victory parade. We have more than 300 accounts of such victory processions from ancient Greek and ancient Roman literature. So the Corinthian church would likely know what Paul means by a triumphal, by a triumphal procession, perhaps even through firsthand experience. The ancient Roman historian Plutarch has recorded in some detail the triumphal procession of one victorious general named Aemilius. According to Plutarch, after returning from battle, General Aemilius strolled through the city for three days, mounted on a chariot. He was beautifully adorned, and his soldiers followed after him, singing hymns in praise of his achievements. In other historical accounts, we read that people would scatter garlands and perfume along the streets, or burn incense as they followed behind this victorious general. So what we see here is a powerful image of God's victory in the world through the work of Christ on the cross. You can almost see the general slowly processing on his chariot, adorned with dazzling garments. You picture garlands strewn about on the ground. The smell of incense and perfume fills the air. And you actually find yourself joining in the soldiers' hymns once you get the hang of them. <coughs> Sorry. I'm going to get my water. I think that'll be good. 
I want to spare you from that again. But to bring you back here to the 21st century America and out of the Roman procession of the first century, Paul isn't just a spectator in this procession. He's right in the middle of it as one of Jesus' soldiers. And under God's leadership, the cause of Christ moves forward as people come to join the parade and follow Jesus. Paul sets off this image with a note of thanksgiving. He says in verse 14, But thanks be to God. And why does Paul give thanks to God? Because Christ has won the battle and has allowed Paul to join his ranks. Paul expands upon this idea of Christ as victor in Colossians 2, verses 13 to 15. He writes, And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now I want to make two careful distinctions here as we start talking about the victory of Christ and our participation as Christian soldiers within Christ's victorious army. First, the victory that Christ achieved when he had triumphed over the rulers and authorities was a spiritual victory, not a military victory. This passage isn't justifying the militaristic crusades of the Middle Ages. Jesus came as the promised Messiah, but to the surprise of his contemporaries, the path he took to victory was a path of suffering, ridicule, and death. In the four Gospels, Jesus states over and over that it's out of obedience to God, his Father, that he would let himself be killed as a substitute and sacrifice for others. So what's Paul, what Paul's doing here is using the image of a military procession to depict the victory of Christ over the spiritual world as he lets others seize, torment, and crucify him. My second clarification is that this image shouldn't lead us into some sort of vague triumphalism. Sometimes when we think God is on our side, we feel confident that he's going to support whatever we're doing. But in this passage, God is not so much on our side as he is ahead of us. This victory procession is going where he directs it. He gives us our marching orders. Just because you're a follower of Christ doesn't mean that your stocks are going to go up and the Cubs are going to win the World Series. Yes, we can certainly pray that God would do something, but he's not a genie in a lamp that we bring around with us to accomplish our own agenda. We follow God. God doesn't follow us. Now then, what difference does it make that we're following behind Jesus in a victory parade? One difference is that it means that we need to take constant care to discern God's will from the scriptures. We need to pray, all of us, that God would direct our corporate and individual decisions through his spirit and his word. This passage also implies that if you're a Christian, then you're already a spiritual soldier. In Ephesians 6, Paul says that we, see, we soldiers need to put on spiritual armor in order to withstand the devil's attacks. He calls us to arm ourselves with faith as a shield, and God's word is our sword. But God's objective wasn't just to hold the Maginot line with Satan. He's on a mission, a spiritual victory procession, and he wants us to form ranks behind him and join in what he's doing in the earth. And as we go, we're supposed to join in the song of the soldiers, singing it loud and clear of all the victory that Christ has won on the cross. But let us remember also that as we join in God's mission, it's not ultimately our responsibility to win the war. Jesus Christ has already won. 
So we follow Jesus and join him in his mission of proclaiming salvation. But this isn't a salvation we hope to achieve. It's one that Christ has already achieved for us when he died in our place on the cross. Now let's look at the second metaphor of our passage, starting with the second half of verse 14. Paul writes, And through us spreads, that is, God spreads through us, the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. The second, more, the second metaphor describes the gospel as a pervasive and polarizing fragrance that spreads into every place through us. In verse 14, Paul emphasizes that it's through us that God spreads this gospel fragrance. But God doesn't just use the apostles in this way. A few chapters later, God will call all of us Christ's ambassadors. The great commission Jesus gave was a commission for any and all who would follow him. They were to go out and make disciples in all the world. When we function like this, Paul says we're the aroma of Christ to God. Here Paul is picking up the language of the Old Testament sacrifices to say that gospel proclamation is a thoroughly pleasing act of Christian worship. Paul uses the language of fragrance and aroma here. But it's important to note that he isn't just saying that we smell like Jesus. We also speak about him. If we look ahead to verse 17, we'll see that Paul says, We speak in Christ. This isn't just a proclamation we make by the way we live our life. It's first and foremost a proclamation we make with our mouth. And this makes sense, doesn't it? How can someone distinguish between, on the one hand, a nice moral person who shovels their sidewalk because they care about them, and on the other hand, a nice moral Christian person who shovels their sidewalk to show that God cares about them? In either case, it's a shoveled sidewalk. An act of kindness, yes. But is it an act in the cause of Christ? Perhaps it is, but how will anyone know unless you tell them? This is the same logic Paul gives in the 10th chapter of Romans, where he says in verses 13 to 15, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? He then goes on to say in verse 17, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So what Paul is telling us is that, yes, we are called to be air fresheners for Jesus, but the only way that people are going to be able to call upon Jesus' name is if they hear the word of Christ on our lips, the gospel. We need to identify the fragrance for others. We need to become air fresheners that say at the bottom, Christ crucified, or Jesus died for your sins. And obviously I'm not talking about making kitsch Christian art here. I'm talking about proclaiming Christ in deed and word in your everyday life. This is part of what it means to live life on God's mission. And this is the type of church God wants us to be. Paul also tells us about where this gospel fragrance spreads and what reactions it elicits. Paul's language here gets a little confusing since he's putting spiritual truth in the literary form of a metaphor. But we can understand that this fragrance of the knowledge of God is, at the very least, the message about Christ, which is the gospel. What Paul's fragrance metaphor shows us, then, is that the gospel is both pervasive and polarizing. Paul draws attention to its pervasiveness in verse 14, when he says that God spreads this knowledge everywhere. The verse literally says, in every place. Paul is saying that the gospel diffuses into every nook and cranny of the world like a fragrance that can't be contained. 
It's like garlic. The scent is powerful and distinct, and it spreads from one room to the next. Garlic infuses a whole dish with its flavors and permeates even through your own skin. Like garlic, the gospel is a fragrance that should flow out of us naturally, shaping our conversations with others and setting the tone for how we discipline our children. Paul is saying that we should take the gospel into every sphere of life and society. He's saying that we should, we should take it into these areas, into every city, into every workplace, because it isn't just a local delicacy. God really intends for this gospel to go throughout the whole world. Because of this, EBF sends many of its own members overseas and dedicates significant sums of its budget to the progress of the gospel worldwide. But pervasive things aren't always appreciated, are they? They tend to intrude upon our life whether we like it or not, and they can be difficult to control. To speak in terms of Paul's metaphor, the aroma of Christ is something you'll smell whether you want to or not. You can't shut off your nose. You can try plugging it, but that still won't work perfectly. In other words, the gospel encounters us and calls us to a, to a decision, even if we weren't wanting to make one. In some sense, communication has an inherent ability to force an encounter like this. If I say to you that the building is on fire, then regardless of what you decide to do, I have forced you to think, at least for a split second, about the fact that the building may or may not be on fire which then has forced you to decide what to do about it. When we proclaim the gospel to others, there's a similar effect. The gospel encounters the listener and calls him or her to respond to this good news. We either have to embrace it for ourselves or we have to reject it. But what we can't do is go back to the time when we hadn't heard it. This is why Paul uses the language that he does in verse 16. Beginning in the previous verse, he says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. You may think that garlic is quite the polarizing fragrance. Either you love it or you hate it. But the gospel is even more polarizing. Paul says it's a fragrance of life to those who are being saved, and a fragrance of death to those who are perishing. That is, for those who repent of their sins and trust Christ as their Savior, this gospel message is a sweet aroma they just can't get enough of and it provides the path to eternal life for them. But for those who reject the gospel, who consider it a foul stench that they try to avoid whenever possible, this encounter with the gospel will leave them one step closer to eternal death in hell. Paul's point is this. The gospel is a pervasive fragrance that encounters you whether you like it or not, but it's also a polarizing force. For some of you, a whiff of this fragrance reassures you of the eternal life you received when you first embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ for yourself. For others of you who continue to reject the gospel, hearing the gospel serves to harden you in your own refusal. But I pray, friends, that you might embrace the gospel for yourself. You see, it's the only way of salvation to God, and it's a free gift from Him. God offers this to you today. And if you have questions about what it means to embrace this gospel for yourself, to get to God his way, come and talk to me after the service. I'd love to talk to you more about it. As we look back at our text for this morning, we can see that Paul now concludes the passage with a statement of the manner and motives of his gospel proclamation. Beginning near the end of verse 16, Paul writes, Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, 
in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. What we see from Paul's words is that the gospel reorients our whole life to give glory to God. Paul begins with a rhetorical question. Who is sufficient for these things? He humbly wonders whether anyone is sufficient to proclaim such a weighty gospel when the eternal destiny of individuals hangs in the balance. Paul will answer his own rhetorical question in the next chapter, in verse 5, when he says, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Paul's rhetorical question should give us pause when we think about our own skills in Christian ministry, especially for those of us who serve in leadership roles. Sometimes we can tend to think that God has so equipped us for the task of ministry that we can breeze through things on the strength of our own experience. I know I struggle with praying about my own ministry because deep down, I've deluded myself into thinking that I really, just in my own power, can bring about the spiritual fruit that I seek. But results are God's work. God gives hearts of flesh to replace hearts of stone. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings spiritual fruit, not me and not you. I think Paul's response here demonstrates his humility as someone whose life has been radically reoriented by the gospel. And that's just what the gospel does. It seeks to reorient our whole life to give glory to God. Now let's look at the contrast Paul sets up in verse 17. Paul says he's not like the many who peddle God's word. This is actually Paul's first reference to a group of pseudo-apostles in Corinth who've been challenging his status as an apostle of Christ. What's important here is the contrast Paul is making with this group. He says that they peddle God's word. The primary idea here is that this group of pseudo-apostles is selling the word of God like a salesman in a market. They were willing to do whatever it took to make the sale, even if that meant manipulating the person or altering God's message. So Paul is saying that the real focus of the apostles, these pseudo-apostles, that is, was the bottom line, on the following and contributions they could generate from their preaching. In other words, they were seeking their own glory. It's audacious to take a message from God and distort it to make yourself look good. It's a de-godding of God. It's idolatry. You know what? Idolatry is at the root of all sin. It's not just something these pseudo-apostles were doing when they were preaching. It's what I do. It's what you do. And that's why repenting of our sin is a necessary part of how God calls us to respond to the gospel. It's a re-godding of God in our life. It's recognizing that his will needs to be done, even if that's different than what we want. It's tendering our resignation and putting Jesus on the throne of our life. And when we see that the gospel calls us to this type of wholesale reorientation from glorifying ourselves to glorifying God, it makes plenty of sense that we would end up acting differently, thinking differently, and speaking differently. In verse 17, Paul says that he speaks as a man of sincerity, meaning that his actions line up with his motives. When Paul says he's proclaiming the gospel to bring glory to God, he really is wanting to glorify God, not himself. He doesn't just put on a show for people. He acts like himself. When he says he's saved by God's grace, he doesn't actually think or act like he's saved by his own works. In the past year, I've become convinced that sincerity is crucial to evangelism in our post-Christian world. Wheaton professor Rick Richardson suggests that a fundamental task for gospel proclamation in America is rebuilding trust with non-Christians. People have been burned by Christians and Christianity. As a result, 
the word evangelist has become in some circles a pejorative for the arrogant and ignorant. Renowned philosopher John Hick has written the following, Any proposal today to convert the whole world to Christianity, or for that matter to any other faith or Islam, is today treason against the peace and diversity of the human family. In his book, Reimagining Evangelism, Richardson suggests that in a context of mistrust like ours, we should learn to practice what he calls mutual care evangelism, where we are willing to both care for non-believers and be willing to receive care from them. We're right to think that caring for the needs of others isn't inroads to evangelism. It certainly is. But Richardson is saying that we need to let them return the favor. This may seem counterintuitive to you, But if you have a friend who's always willing to help you with your problems but will never talk about theirs, doesn't that make you frustrated? Why should we expect something different in our relationships with non-Christians? I'm sure there are plenty of non-Christians out there who would love to be able to care for you. Are you willing to be put into a position where you receive care from them? Are you willing to put your own struggles out there, your struggles to believe in God's existence, to love your spouse, to live up to the standards of the Bible, In other words, are you willing to authentically engage with non-Christians as a way of showing them that you sincerely care about them? This really has the potential of getting into your business, though, and there's certainly some risk involved. But in our context, this type of authenticity and transparency is wonderfully refreshing. Most of us know how powerful it is when you're praying in a group and the person next to you expresses this humble, contrite prayer, and they really mean it. This type of authentic communication can help us proclaim the gospel on a level playing field by showing, others, um, by showing others our own faults, sins, and weaknesses rather than just tacking on a perfunctory statement that Christians still aren't perfect. It gives the other person a chance to identify with your struggles and lets them see how the gospel has really shaped your lifestyle and your perspective even as you struggle to follow Christ more closely. And you're only going to be able to do this if you're really enamored with Christ's righteousness and not your own righteousness. Doesn't that make sense? Otherwise, you'd be seeking to protect your own image. But wouldn't this serve to draw attention to the marvelous grace of God all the more? And isn't this the type of honest conversation that you enjoy having? I think mutual care evangelism is one excellent way that we can proclaim the gospel with greater sincerity and authenticity in our world. Now, I want to note a couple more things in verse 17 before we finish up. First, Paul notes that he speaks in the presence of God, meaning that he believes God will hold him and us to account for what we do with the gospel message that has been entrusted to us. Paul also notes that he speaks as someone who has been commissioned by God. This divine commission is what gives the authority to share the gospel with others. When Jesus commissioned his followers in Matthew 28, he prefaced his statement by saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And when he tells them to go and make disciples, he confers this authority upon them so that they can fulfill their commission. Likewise for us, when people ask what right we have to tell other people that Jesus is the only way to heaven, we can know that it really doesn't boil down to freedom of speech or freedom of expression. It boils down to the fact that God has commissioned us for this very task. And refusing to tell others would be an act of disobedience to him. Now, this doesn't mean that we have carte blanche to speak the gospel however and wherever we want. No person deserves to be reduced to an evangelistic target. 
we still need to be wise and speak out of a heart of love in ways that uphold the dignity of every person. But the point is that God has given all Christians a commission to proclaim the gospel, including every Christian here. I think that there are still tremendous opportunities for evangelism waiting for us at Brothers K Coffee House, the Celtic Knot, the Y, Cozy Noodle, and Norris, at home and at work, with your colleagues and your classmates. But if we want to be a church that's characterized by gospel proclamation, then we need to know the gospel inside and out. We need to understand what Christ has accomplished through his death and resurrection and what difference it makes in 21st century America. We need to take stock of the many spheres of influence that God has given to us with our neighbors, our mother-in-law, our hairstylist, our boss, and then gather together with other Christians to find ways to proclaim the gospel creatively within these spheres, connecting Jesus Christ to the hurts, struggles, and hopes of all people. I hope that these are the types of conversations you're having in your ethos community. And I pray that God would kindle a burning desire in our church to share the gospel with creativity, authenticity, and sincerity. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would do a supernatural work at this church where you bring your spirit and power where you change our will and our lifestyle and our speech to make it God-saturated and seeking to glorify God and every component of it. We ask that you would bring revival upon Evanston and Skokie, that you would bring revival in our hearts, that you would renew our commitment to you, our love for the gospel, and that you would use us as your instruments for your mission in Evanston, in Chicago, and in the world. In your name we ask this. Amen.